0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Binge Thinking Podcast, the show where we bring you expert perspectives from millennial minds. I'm Casper Roxburgh, and this is episode 18. Well, we've had a bunch of new listeners join us in the last couple of episodes, and if you're new to the show, welcome. I hope you find something supportive from hearing young voices telling their stories and that you can start to build something of a supportive young community around you by listening to this show. That's certainly what we're trying to do with it. This episode is really cool. I spoke to 31-year-old artist Jared Gere. Jared first came to public prominence in 2013 when he was ordered by the Victorian state government to destroy all of his artwork. Does that sound interesting? If you're wondering how this could have happened, you really need to understand what Jared's work is all about. Jared is an expert in what he calls skeletal articulation. It's a kind of artistic work with the bones of animals. That might sound creepy to you, but there's a subculture around the globe of people interested in making art out of the remains of animals. And Jared is at the forefront of it in Australia. His courses in skeletal articulation are literally paying the bills. He's a really fascinating character and an incredibly charming guy. I asked Jared all about his work and the journey he made from hairdresser to paid artist, dealing with death, and understanding your weaknesses and when to ask for outside help. It's a great episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it for you. If you do enjoy it, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or on Stitcher or whatever your preferred podcast app is. You should also definitely like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. We're always posting stuff about latest episodes. So if you're not keeping up to date with what's going on with the show, that's the best way to stay informed. And we have about 458 people doing so on Facebook. It'd be really awesome to get to 500. So if you know somebody that might like the show, you should let them know so that they can check it out and we can try and build our community even faster. Also, lastly, you can suggest a guest to us for next year's season. We're already booked out for this year, but we're always looking for good guests. So if you know somebody with an interesting story to tell, please definitely let us know about it. As always, this episode was produced and edited by the marvellous Nina Roxburgh and features music by Big Gigantic. Okay, enough housekeeping. Now I bring you Jared Gill. So, that's your
1: biggest show? Um, yeah, that was definitely my biggest show. It was my yeah. first solo exhibition, uh, which is a little bit kind of confusing because it was actually a dual solo. So, um, I was how How's that work? Can yeah, <laughs> it kind of needs a bit of explanation, I think. So, my work being sculptural left a lot of blank walls. And yeah. so, uh, with the gallery director, I, we had a bit of a chat about how we could fill that space and how we could, you know, really make full use out of it yeah uh, and there's another really amazing uh melbourne artist called sam young who does incredible incredible paintings that really really mesh quite well with the subject matter of both of our work and yeah. so um so he had his first solo show as well so his work was all across the walls and my work uh took the space in between so mm. Yeah. And
0: so but you still call it a solo show even though there were two artists in the show. So how yeah, does yeah. that work? Like for those <laughs> outside of the art scene, such yeah, as myself. Well,
1: it's it's kinda of interesting, you know, there there are a lot of different gallery spaces that do similar things. You know, they may have two different rooms or two different spaces. Uh, yeah. this gallery just has the one space. Um mm. Uh, and so, yeah, basically both of them were, were kind of contained because um, Sam's work took up when you walked in uh, all the walls along the left-hand side and the wall directly at the back of the gallery. Um, yeah. And my work took the centre of the space uh, and the far right wall. So, yeah. there I guess there, there were ways where you could kind of separate the two. Um, but yeah. yeah, it was a
0: conceptual division yeah, almost. Yeah. Yeah, totally.
1: Ways. So. so Like how do you
0: feel about that? Do you reckon you'll do more? uh, Uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, So
1: actually, um, Sam and I have another exhibition planned for, I believe, October next year. So, um, it was a really, really great success. Um, Huge. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was phenomenal. It was actually um, at that point it was probably one of the most uh, busy and popular uh exhibitions that have been held at the gallery yeah uh, which was really really exciting so
0: yeah. i mean you couldn't fit everyone yeah in no the room. Even, <laughs> even the people that were in the room it was a real struggle it got it around. got pretty packed it did yeah, get pretty packed yeah and you were just um, like the celebrity everyone <laughs> was trying to talk to you i saw your mum trying to get to talk to you yeah yeah i
1: had to um, i had to make some time for mum but <laughs> yeah of course um yeah yeah it was it was, it was pretty busy so yeah
0: right <laughs> Well, I mean, I think i better introduce you because people are just (laughs) sitting here and they're like hearing you and going, who the fuck is this guy? Um, You're listening to Binge Thinking. This is episode 18. We're sitting down at my house once again, at long last, after much travel and I'm weary and enjoying one of my home brewed beers, which couldn't (laughs) be nicer. Um, I'm sitting here with one of Melbourne's most intriguing characters, an eclectic man who I've actually known for quite a few years. And it's a real honor to have him on the show. I've been wanting to get him on the show since before I came up with the show idea. So that tells you a little bit about it. <laughs> um, Jared Gere, why don't you tell them who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, cool. Um, well, at the moment I'm, um, I'm a, I'm a student. I'm in my second year studying the bachelor of biological sciences. Um, I'm an ex hairdresser. Uh, I was a hairdresser for a good seven or eight years working in Turak. Yeah. Um, but pretty much for, for the last 10, 10 or so years, I've been pretty fascinated with anatomy. And I've been, I suppose, exploring that through a creative aspect for the last couple of years through a combination of sculpture, jewellery, wearable arts and yeah, basically, I'm a, I'm an, artist. <laughs> an <laughs> artist. Many many fields. An artist
0: obsessed and and inspired by anatomy and all things. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's like kind of hard that. to put a pin on it. Really, it is hard. It is yeah. hard. So I mean, like let's let's just go into a little bit of the detail and cover some of those, you know, the different aspects of your art because there is a lot to it. There is a lot, um, and there's a kind of a big story behind it as well. Totally. So. Let's start with the big ticket item in my book, which will always be the way that I describe you to people, which is to say he's... A self-taught taxidermist.
1: Yeah, so so taxidermist is the one that I find really funny because taxidermist is what I'll say when I kind of can't be bothered really explaining what I'm into. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the easiest way f- to give people a bit of an understanding. Yeah. So tell people um, who they who all right, don't know. So people know. who don't understand what taxidermy is. Taxidermy is when you uh, basically uh, remove the skin of an animal and preserve it and then mount it so that it appears lifelike. What I do is kind of the opposite of taxidermy in a lot of ways, because, um, you know, what a taxidermist preserves is the skin and they want to create a natural lifelike, um, you know, interpretation of that animal.
0: Yeah, this is like the hunter that wants to mount the moose or the bear yeah, absolutely. or whatever. That's, uh, that's, ta- that's, that's where, taxidermy. yeah, that's probably that's, the
1: most famous. Absolutely. And you version. see that, you see it a lot in museums and, you know, it's got a really, really strong roots in biological understandings of the world. And, yeah. Um, But yeah, these days it is kind of more associated with hunting, absolutely. Mm. What I kind of am more interested in doing is actually taking everything that a taxidermist doesn't want, so all of the insides, all of the bones, all of the inner machinery of the animal, Mm. cleaning them, preserving them, and utilizing them to create sculptures uh, that kind of blur the line between imagination and potential biological possibilities. Um, So I like to use the bones to create fantasy animals and different creatures that provoke the viewer to question, you know, whether it is or isn't a real thing. So that's <laughs> wicked. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. mean, so
0: where do you come up with these ideas of these creatures?
1: I mean, I'm always fascinated by fantasy. So, you know, there are a lot of kind of chimera creatures in my work. You know, you'll see quite a few dragons. I've kind of been making a lot less dragons since Game of Thrones started, to be honest. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of dragons right now. But that's it. I still kind of do go there every now and then. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested when I do create my works to try to envision what that animal might have looked like when it was alive and mm-hmm. try to give it the biological structures that would enable it to actually move and actually exist if it were to be a real thing. Yeah. Um, so the... The inspirations come from a lot of different places but usually they kind of start with an emotion. I kind of connect with a bit of a feeling that that I want to work out a way of displaying and then I start from there and I build it up and build it up into a creature uh, and try to create and capture as much of that emotion as I can in
0: the imaginary being mm. that I created. So, so, you know, I'm, th- I'm, I'm hearing you talk and I'm picturing all of your work in my head, but a lot of people probably, I would say definitely the majority of people listening would never have seen your work before. Yeah, so, probably right. <laughs> so can you describe a bit like just the actual materials that you're using? Yeah, Like sure. there's the insides and stuff. And just, you know, so when you're talking about like building stuff, what are you building? Like, and so, how are you building
1: it? Totally. So I use, um, I use... Uh, animal bones as my predominant medium Um, so they can come from a lot of different places so you know often they'll come from vets you know they'll be donated to me from people's pets that have died Um, they'll be you know things that I found on the side of the road provided they're not native Um, yeah yeah, basically try to source them from as many different places as I can Um, but yeah so basically what I'll do is I'll clean and process the bones and then when it comes to sculpting them I'll work out the correct anatomical orders that I want things to go in I'll usually make changes here and there Depending on how I want that animal to kind of sit but piece by piece bone by bone I'll build the creatures that I'm making yeah. up from yeah from, from the, the ground up from the ground up so, so you're talking
0: like you start with a foot or a skeleton <laughs> yeah. whatever it is it might be a claw or yeah or something. yeah and you'll put that together and then start putting together a leg and, or a wing or whatever.
1: Yeah, totally. It can come in a lot of different ways. Like I find quite often, I'll usually start with the chest and the rib cage. So like anywhere from, you know, maybe the pelvis up to the base of the neck. Yeah. Um, I really kind of like to create the shape in the body first and then mm. build the arms and legs onto that. And I yeah. try to make everything a little bit adjustable as I go. So mm. creating lots of armatures between the bones and, you know, that allows me a little bit more flexibility in pose. So, so usually starts in the center and kind of radiates outwards yeah yeah i guess so, that would make sense it yeah. would
0: make it a lot easier to manage if you got yeah. you know, the proportions and everything like that <laughs> if you just build this giant wig and they go oh yeah shit, now i'm gonna build a really big body i don't know if i have the materials yeah. for it <laughs> so immediately it's starting to make a lot more sense why you're studying biological sciences yeah totally um, so talk to me a little bit about how yeah studying the science behind the body and the anatomy is, well, is kind of building into your art.
1: Well, it's, it's kind of been a really interesting thing, right? Because when I first got really interested in this kind of work, I was completely self-taught. I basically mm. just kind of experimented, did a lot of trial and error. With you know everything that I was doing, everything that I was cleaning, I would watch animals slowly decay over time, and I'd pay a really really close attention to where all of the bones sat and what kind of went where. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my early learning was very visual, um, and then you know as the bones were processed, it became very tactile. You know, I'd play yeah. with the bones, I'd feel them, I'd kind mm-hmm. of work out where everything sat in that kind of way and then over the last few years i started wanting to actually learn a little bit more about what i was doing like i didn't know the names for a lot of the bones that i was working with you know yeah. i knew like femur and humerus but i didn't know mm. that the bones in the arm were called the radial and ulna i didn't know you know there's there's a whole bunch of things that i didn't know yeah. and so i started slowly teaching myself the actual language of science and the more i started teaching myself that language the more interested in it i became um, and yeah, it just kind of hit this tipping point where I was like, no, nah, I really just need to study. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's really cool. Like, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through my degree at the moment and um, it's kind of ironic. Uh, last week, I actually did my first ever guided dissection, mm. um, which which is really ironic, particularly given that for the last you know year and a half, I've actually been running um, skeletal articulation workshops in, you know, where I basically teach... Groups of people, how to do all of the things that I do. Yeah. Which part of that is actually the skinning and evisceration? Mm. Um, and so while I, you know, have learned the name and how to identify all the organs, this yeah. was the first time I've ever actually done it in a guided scientific yeah. way. So yeah. it was in just in the formal process. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was did, really was it fascinating. Diff- was it different? It was, it was very different. Yeah. Uh, there was a point in which I was actually almost crying. Um, it was really? kind of, it was kind of not not, not emotional. Well, yeah. a little bit emotionally. It was it was, yeah. it was a full on thing, but. Um, So one thing that I whenever I do skeletal articulation with smaller animal specimens, like one of the the spaces where I find the most beauty exists is within the thoracic region. So uh, all of the ribs and the intercostals and the sternum and the way that all of that comes together. And so, Mm. you know, whenever I'm at home preparing an animal, um, I take so much care to really, really, really carefully remove the skin to make sure that I'm not damaging any of the bones. Yeah. Whereas in the anatomy, in the dissection class, we were taking a pair of scissors and slicing through the intercostals and actually cutting the entire front part of the rib cage off, which to me just felt completely different from everything that I would normally do. Mm.
0: So you really straddle this line between the science and the arts so strongly in what you do. Like you get to see... Quite clearly, like the same process, but done for different reasons and how one butchers the other and vice versa in a way, no pun intended. (laughs) Well, it's,
1: it's, it's, it extends further than that as well. Like, um, rest in pieces, the business that I run my, my skeletal classes through also run mouse taxidermy workshops, Yeah. um, And whenever they skin the mouse for taxidermy, they'll do things like cut the bone at the wrist, which to me just feels criminal because, you know, you could very easily just slice through it with a scalpel, but for the purposes of taxidermy, it's not necessary. And so, you know, all of the different applications where animals are used uh, in this kind of manner all use very different processes. And Mm. so, yeah, when you're strictly in love with one, seeing it in the other is a bit of a bastardization of sorts. so. (laughs) So.
0: what did you call it? The skeletal
1: articulation, skeletal articulation. Can you explain? So an articulation is basically the connection of two bones that allow movement. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the bones in your elbow between your humerus and your radial and ulna is an articulation. Um, So So you're, you're
0: moving your elbow. Yeah. So it's, it's 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 the movement movement of the bone. Yeah. Yeah. But it's
1: specifically to do with the connection between the two. Sure. So skeletal articulation is the process of actually rebuilding those articulations. So once the bones are all separated, articulation is putting them back together.
0: Yeah. Right. Okay. Do you see that as your specialty? It's totally my thing. (laughs) Yeah. That's the the thing that you really do for now. yeah,
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's kind of funny. Like, I mean, I do go through a lot of phases like, um, Uh, so for the last maybe two years, I've been, uh, experimenting and really refining the techniques of diaphanization. Um, what are you going to have to explain? I'm going to have to explain that one as well. (laughs) Let's try and do it in a way that people can actually understand it. I'm uh, I'm actually getting pretty good at explaining these weird sciencey things. Okay. So diaphanization is the process of clearing all of the muscle tissues in an animal and staining particular tissues mm. so it's the process of rendering an animal specimen transparent and then using particular biological based dyes uh, to adhere to different types of tissues and in so,
0: practice what does it end up looking like so holding up a in practice here. what you
1: wind up with uh, is basically an animal preserved in a particular type of liquid uh, that effectively looks like an x-ray but in technicolor
0: awesome so it's like tie-dyed bones yeah Maybe it's, not tie-dyed. Not quite tie-dyed. Yeah. <laughs> I like to think that it's consistent. Yeah, it is. It's much more consistent than <laughs> yeah, tie-dyed. Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the big techniques you're using in, a, mm. in addition to this kind of constructing of creatures using the skeletal articulation yeah. you know, approach, shall we say. And yeah, I, yeah, forgive totally. me if I'm kind of butchering yeah, how you would describe it. Yeah, no, no, no. no it's it, quite accurate. Yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's, it's, at the moment, it's really like these two things that you're doing in in your... Creative work day to day, yeah. At the moment, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so do you think that you're going to end up at a point where you're going to say, "Well, I can't make the creature like that because it wouldn't work in, in this magical world that I've invented in yeah. my head, where this creature <laughs> exists." It's going to impact in this. Do you, Do you feel like the science is starting to affect how you? create new creatures Um, or it already
1: it already has like you know when i reflect on some of my earlier works i'm just i just kind of laugh sometimes and just like that would be biologically awkward (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah i mean i've definitely developed a lot of the processes by which i develop the animals that i create Mm. now so um i really hope to continue refining that in the future as well but you know with understanding different anatomical structures i've been for the last probably three or four months i've been massively nerding out on fish yeah um With a mammal you've you've basically you've got two parts of a skull you've got the the main skull and you've got the lower mandible Mm. whereas with fish everything is all of these individual little plates that all overlap and run over each other there's no particularly obvious points on the bone where they actually connect together mm-hmm. um by the time you finish processing a fish skull you wind up with about around 150 different individual bones oh, that you know create the most complex three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle that have had all of the joining bits and connectors so, um, cut
0: off well this is obviously going to be intensely fascinating for someone yeah. like you yeah like yeah, this is like <laughs> a whole new ballgame it's like oh wow yeah. you can introduce this level of complexity to yeah. it and
1: therefore like it's like a canvas for creativity, sure. Totally, and that's yeah. and that's the thing that I find really fascinating about it, because like um, you know, there's so much room to play with fishbones. Mm. Um, uh yeah, it's been something that I've been working on quite a lot, and for my solo show, Kaimehera, that um, finished up a couple of months ago fish skulls kind of did compose one of the main parts of the medium that i was working with Mm. um so i was able to reshape and recreate them in a whole bunch of different ways that yeah just really really challenged me quite a lot yeah but yeah so it is
0: the study is really influencing the work yeah massively massively (laughs) okay we're gonna i can nerd out from fish
1: let's (laughs) move away from fish don't talk about (laughs) fish (laughs) all right
0: so you have this really incredible job you get to work and you know, basically pay your way and, you know, survive off your art, which is obviously something that yeah. all artists aspire to. But Getting there is not easy. Getting <laughs> there is not easy. And when we first met, you yeah. we were a hairdresser. So I'd love to hear a bit more about how, how that's uh, kind of happened. Yeah, what have you learned? Share yeah, us totally. a little bit with
1: it um there's no real line when it all happened it was very blurry i was in and out of hairdressing a lot like Mm -hmm. i quit i wound up going back i quit i wound up going back i did Mm -hmm. that a lot of times yeah making that shift from working full time to actually moving away and and trying to make art to make ends meet has been a really big challenge and i mean it's still it still is it's it's a Mm -hmm. constant challenge Mm. um one of the jobs that i kind of have created for myself is i actually do pet articulations Mm. so when somebody's pet has died you know they might call a taxidermist and then yeah. every taxidermist around Australia will ring every other taxidermist until there's no taxidermist left and then they'll call me <laughs> which is amazing <laughs> I love it list. I am the last on the list I'm literally I'm, I'm sure there are other taxidermists out there who do do skeletal yeah, yeah. work um, I mean I personally know of a couple but to be honest not many people really like doing pets because it's quite an intensive process for a lot of yeah, people yeah. Um, so but
0: people come to you with their pets what are they asking
1: for a lot of different things um, so a lot of the time somebody might come to me because they want their pet completely skeletally articulated. So they might mm. want, you know, their pet cat, for example, to be preserved in a position that replicates a position that they would sit in in life yeah. uh, as their way of kind of keeping a part of them with her. You know, yeah. it's a memento mori, yeah, you know, it's yeah. um, it's just a different way of, you know, acknowledging and confronting death for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I do get quite a lot of custom work in that sense, like somebody might Mm. have a pet die and they might just want, you know, a couple of the bones preserved so that they can make their own locket. Sure. Or they might want me to design some jewelry for them so that Mm -hmm. they can wear a part of them forever. Yeah. So over the last couple of years, when I left hairdressing, I started making it a bit more accessible, I suppose that, Hey, this is something that I like doing and that I'm open to do. Um, commercializing your skills in other ways aside from just directly. Yeah, totally. So not, not necessarily creative. Um, But yeah, so pet preservation is something that I'm really, really, really passionate about because, mm. you know, I recognize that it is a really, really emotional space for a person to be in, you mm. know, wanting to keep something of their pet as a memory. Yeah. It's not something that they're very readily able to talk about with a lot of other people. Yeah, um, It's a very taboo topic. Death. Yeah, totally. Yeah, death, everything. There's everything a way that you, is deal, taboo. Yeah, yeah. you <laughs> deal with
0: death that's acceptable and anything outside of the norms is is just considered weird and yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think my years in hairdressing have absolutely prepared me for this because, um, you know, I was kind of joking the other day that I'm, you know, at the moment I'm not an artist. I'm a, I'm an emotional psychologist. I'm a grief counselor. Um, I've been spending hours on the phone basically talking, you know, the, the clients that I'm working with through Mm. the processes Mm. that I'm using. I like to be really, Uh, really really thorough describing the you know not necessarily in in particular detail the you know what I'm doing but how I'm doing it I think is a really important thing to pass on Mm -hmm. Um, but also you know when you're working with somebody's pet who they love they want to know that they're safe they want to be reinforced. And mm. so um you know there is quite a lot of work that I feel is is really important for me to actually provide for them yeah. um in assuring them and reassuring them that you know their pets in safe hands that and they're looked after. Being respectful and, and I'm also, you know, kind of holding a bit of an emotional space for them while this process yeah. is is mm. is happening. Mm. So um yeah, it's been really really beautiful. Um running the classes that I'm teaching have been a really really awesome change to my life like um you so know, when
0: did you come up with that how did you come up so
1: with that? Natalie who's one of my closest friends she's the creator sole owner of rest in pieces taxidermy mm-hmm. um so pretty much from the moment we met you know we just clicked like a house on fire it Mm. was a really beautiful relationship because you know she can use all the things that i don't use i can use all the things that she doesn't use um, and we can both teach each other and help each other grow and develop our Mm. own relevant techniques and skills yeah um so pretty much from the moment we met we're just like all right cool this would fit perfectly together Mm. um you know and so we we talked for quite a long time about developing a, a class and uh yeah basically it took a good couple of months to figure out a way of breaking down you know what i'd learned over f- easily 10 years now yeah um but to break 10 years of information that i've taught myself without language to describe mm. it into a, a readily method. readily consumable format for people who have never done this before was an absolute nightmare um but yeah so basically every every couple of months i run a class for you know up to 12 people and it's been really really popular um yeah right how do you get the word out And how popular is it and who comes? Yeah, okay, so they're all amazing questions. When it comes to how do we get the word out, I have no idea. Um, I do not understand marketing. I do not understand any of that kind of world. So somebody else does. Natalie does it all. She's an absolute genius. Um, Who comes? Who comes? This is the thing that's actually been blowing my mind the most. The vast majority of uh, students that I wind up teaching are easily women. I would say that it's it's 90% women. Um, if not a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, and usually they're from you know a little bit of an older demographic. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's actually been really really fascinating. I'd say I've had five or six and is male this, students.
0: Is their interest primarily as artists themselves, or
1: what, like what? Where? How are they coming to this? So I love I love my classes so much some people just want to try something new they want to explore something they've never tried before Mm. a whole bunch of the people that come to my class are people that for years have had a skull collection in their shed but have never known how to talk about it with their other friends you know they're people that have because it's creepy right it is creepy as fuck (laughs) when you say I'm into skulls I'm into bones people just immediately think of serial killers yeah um there's some pretty weird connotations if they don't think of serial killers they're usually thinking of hunters and you know the big kind of stag mount taxidermy in the the man shed Mm. um yeah so what i'm finding is really fascinating is a lot of the students that come to my class are just stoked on having you know 12 other people that they can nerd out about their fascination that they can never talk about with other people. It's so great. (laughs) It's very
0: different to saying, oh yeah, I study trees. Yeah. I was like,
1: oh yeah, okay. That's boring, but acceptable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've had a couple of uh, biology teachers. Um, I've had students from maybe four or five different universities come Mm. through, Mm. Um, had an amazing student who's actually opening up, I think it actually is Australia's first bone museum out in Gympie. Wow. Um, Yeah. In Queensland yeah so she's an absolute yeah, right. rock star um Hello. i think yeah they we have a lot
0: of people listening in brisbane
1: oh really yeah yeah, yeah, yeah awesome um if you're out. in brisbane check out gimpy bone museum gimpy um, Bone Museum. yeah everyone up there are just absolute legends um, yeah. and it's a really really cool space i haven't actually seen it yet um but i've oh, seen a whole bunch of photos um and yeah i can't wait to get up there oh yeah, yeah they're awesome so cool yeah so you started, <laughs> these,
0: you started these classes and yep. now you're making money
1: yeah, the classes are pretty much my my bread and butter. Um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting because there's kind of a couple of different ways in which I look at the way that I have to work with the money that I am making and that I'm earning, you know. Whenever I sell my work through an exhibition, mm. I will spend all of that money on my next series of art supplies or different yeah. creative things or setting myself up for the next show. So yeah. there's pretty much no chance of saving any money from an art exhibition. When I run my classes, all of that money is basically, you know, going towards supporting me and making sure that I can eat. And I'm trying, Rent, I try really, yeah, exactly, red mean. bills, all of your stock standard bread and butter. And I yeah. try really, really, really hard never to spend the money that I make from my classes on my creative things. Cause I kind of mm. have to make sure that I'm balancing it out somehow. Mm.
0: So that's so, interesting because like, it sounds like you've come up with a
1: financial management Approach to
0: your desire (laughs) to throw all your money into your artwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is really fascinating. Um, Yeah. And and was
1: that deliberate or did that kind of just evolve naturally over time? No, it was very deliberate. It was very deliberate. Um, So I kind of looked at the way that I was earning money when I do do my classes. Mm. um, And I kind of looked at how much I get. I looked at how frequently I run them. I looked at the costs that it incurs to me. um, Mm. And I said, all right, cool. This can kind of balance out. If I put all of this aside, then that's my rent. Yeah. Um, So then there's a little block left over. If I factor, you know, the payments that I get for being a full-time student into it, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously a lot of that goes to a lot of different things, you know, my textbooks and public transport, et cetera. Um, I kind of looked at it as though, well, you know, once I've paid the rent and the bills uh, and everything with my workshops, um, then there's a little bit left over. Which, if I divide it up by the time between workshops, that's my wage. <laughs> yeah, that's my yeah. living wage. Yeah. Um, How often
0: do you run these workshops?
1: Uh, it usually every three months. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes so. a little more, sometimes a little less. Mm. We're doing interstate. Which Where we're you really going? excited about. Sydney. Yeah, nice. So we'll be looking at expanding out the first time. Further. First time interstate. Yeah, right. Very when exciting. are you going to when are you going to Queensland? Uh, that will be happening. Uh, it's on the cards. It's not locked in yet. Um, but it will be there. So yeah, nice. Uh, how much does a class cost? Uh, so basically the, the class runs over two days. Uh, it's fully comprehensive. So all of the tools, everything that you need is provided. We provide all the food and way too much wine. Um, if you come to the class, you're probably going to leave drunk. So we advise people to not drive there. Um, and yeah, also, yeah, the persistently open wine bottles can be a little bit dangerous because if you've not noticed already, I can certainly talk. You give me a glass of wine. Gets a bit worse, but um, I believe it's 650. Okay. 650. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah so, so, you know, we're talking dollars here. Yeah. This is uh, nice. But yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing. Um, it's actually the first class that's ever happened in Australia for skeletal articulation. Okay. Does this um, sort of stuff happen overseas very often? Do people teach this stuff? There are a couple of people that teach overseas. Um, I'm. From everything that I have seen online, this is by far the most comprehensive. Right. Um, in so the, that you know of That I've globally. ever seen globally. Okay. Um, wow. And I, I feel a little bit pretentious saying that, talking yeah. about my own workshop. Yeah. But basically, my workshop covers uh, everything from the moment you've got an animal to the point of finishing it. Whereas mm-hmm. a lot of the other articulation classes, you go in there, you're given a predominantly articulated particular animal skeleton and you basically put it together and you might be in there for three hours okay so you might learn some loose skills but you've Mm -hmm. got no idea how to put them into practice um i have probably about 15 or 20 students who are regularly articulating skeletons yeah it's it's really really cool seeing people that you know i've um you know been able to facilitate on this journey just see them really take it and run yeah so yeah yeah. it must be so rewarding (laughs) and, and exciting yeah yeah so
0: this is how you made your work pay by basically sharing it with others and because it's such a niche area you know you're offering something that even globally it's rare Yeah, totally well it's
1: kind of interesting because like um one thing that i really love talking about in my workshops particularly given it is a predominantly female student-based class Mm. um i read this really really incredible article completely and utterly dissecting the rogue taxidermy movement basically taxidermy's new incarnation from a feminist perspective Mm. um And it's really quite amazing. Like if you asked me to list, you know, my favorite taxidermy and skeletal artists, I don't think I could actually name a male artist. Right. So you're a
0: rarity in
1: this Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. It's a predominantly female oriented movement. What
0: are your insights into into this? Why does it particularly attract women over men?
1: Okay. So one thing that this particular article discussed, which really resonated with me, Mm. is that the neo-taxidermy revival is... Looking at taxidermy from a totally different perspective, you know, if when we were talking about taxidermy before, the, you know, you said pretty much the same thing that I say, you yeah. know, the big taxidermy stag, you know, yep. that that kind the hunting, of- The hunter, culture, the hunter, yeah, totally, the trophy, totally. trophy, totally. et cetera, yeah. um, And, you know, they're kind of things that we would traditionally ascribe as being, you know, quite heavily masculine. masculine. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, the taxidermy revival comes from a completely different space, you know, the vast majority of taxidermy and skeletal artists that are making beautiful work out there, you know, what they're wanting to do. Do is create something beautiful out of the remains of an animal that's passed as a way of respecting it and giving it love and giving mm. it a second life, mm. which is very, very different to shooting something so you can stick it on your wall. Yeah. Um, so would you describe that as your passion? Because I have to ask these questions. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah oh, honestly, yeah, it, it really is like um, when you say it's my passion, it is a passion, but it's also there's a need. There's a kind of, it's not an urgency, but like a necessity to it. Um, you know, whenever I'm driving along the highways, whenever I'm, you know, driving around, I can tell when there's an animal nearby, I can feel it. I'll pull over on the, on the side of the road, I'll step out and there's, you know, something that's been hit right on the side of the road that I would never have been able to see from the road, but Mm. i will just i'll know it's there what do you mean like that's that's yeah. weird man. that's, that's <laughs> like um, psychic shit yeah you know? yeah i know work? and i don't really believe in all that psychic yeah yeah, yeah shit, but, but like, what, do, what you know? do you think's going on there
0: um okay. there's just that so, many dead animals that if th- there are a, there you are can...
1: a lot of dead animals um I don't really know how to describe it. I mean, I've been picking up Roadkill and, you know, working with it for, you know, easily 10 years. That Mm. was kind of, that was where my work started. You know, it started out of this passion for, you know, seeing an animal on the side of the road that people would walk past and say, they'd view it as trash or not kind of love it or respect it. I'd Mm. want to take that and cherish it um, and convert it into something beautiful that can last and, you know, have Mm. a second life. And like you say, honor it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) um, So I started, you know, looking for it everywhere I went, but... Mm. The moment that I started looking for it, I realized it was everywhere. And so eventually I kind of, something just kind of stopped and I'd just drive and I'd know. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I'd be driving and I'd have the window down and I'd smell something and I'm like, that's a possum. I'm going to pull over in hundred meters and bam, yeah. there was a possum, you know, yeah, yeah. it's just so kind of this weird, creepy <laughs> connection to yeah. the world around you almost. It's yeah, I crazy. think so. Like... Um, I don't know. It was kind of funny. Like, you know, if you'd asked me that question a couple of years ago, I'd probably give you a very different answer. Um, yeah. I think a lot's, you know, kind of changed for me personally. Like, as I was mentioning before, I don't work with natives anymore. Yeah. Um, it's, you, you can't legally do that. But, yeah. you know, when I used to, I used to get this, this strong feeling that, you know, they would call out to me. Mm. Not that I heard it, not that I necessarily believed it, but that's what it yeah. felt like, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, I'd pull over on the side of the road and, you know, for no reason, you know, maybe I was just, getting out to stretch my legs Mm -hmm. and I'd find a beautifully preserved, you know, animal or a skeleton or I'd find something. Yeah. So Yeah.
0: I wanna change tack a little bit. Yeah. We need to talk about working with native animals.
1: Um, so, yeah, I mean, my, my whole, the whole ethos of my work started with native animals, you know, the first animal that I ever worked with was a little ringtail possum that, you mm-hmm. know, I'd helped raise. My mum had looked after it when it was a little baby uh, and she lived with us for a long time. But when she died, I wanted to make something beautiful out of her. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of what started my passion and my interest in doing what I do. Yeah. Uh, and as I was mentioning before, I used to see roadkill everywhere and, you know, nine times out of 10, it was a possum, it was a kangaroo, it was a beautiful native bird, you know, yeah. it, was, it was always natives. So So, um, that's kind of where the vast majority of my early work came from. It was from Mm -hmm. bones that I'd found that were nearly always native. Um, and that was what I used to make sculpture work with. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in 2013, um, I learned the hard way that <laughs> uh, yeah basically there are a lot of laws and legalities and restrictions surrounding how we're legally allowed to use and work with the remains of Native Australian animals yeah. um, now how did you find out about that what happened yes yeah, so this? it's kind of a blurry timeline um, I was visited by I think Think they were the Department of Sustainability and Environment uh, yeah. when I first started dealing with them. They then, probably changed. And then names. they were the Department of Environment and Primary Industries, yeah, and I yeah, don't even yeah. know who they are now. Yeah. I think it's like land planning and something yeah. else. Basically, the regulatory department for native animals and different resources yeah. visited me at my house with a folder full of photographs of my work. And, you know, at the time, because, you know, where everything came from and the story behind it was so important, I'd basically detailed how and where I'd found everything, how I got it back to Melbourne, how mm-hmm. I made it, whatnot. Mm-hmm. And they readily informed me that it wasn't that I'd broken laws. I'd acted in contravention to the Wildlife Act of yep. 1975, which regulates how you can and can't work with native wildlife or interfere i believe is the word on mm-hmm. in their paperwork but um they made it quite clear to me that yeah there was no way that i could do what i was doing legally mm-hmm. everything that i had obtained uh was illegally obtained i was not allowed to do anything with it legally yep. uh, and that i wouldn't be in any trouble if mm-hmm. i was to destroy all of my work and not continue Making no. any more of it, <laughs> so you were ordered, essentially, yes, effectively, to destroy all yeah.
0: of your artwork, almost yes. all of it that had ever been done. Yeah, pretty much everything point. I'd made how, up until that point. And how so. long had you been making artwork? So this stage? was
1: this was 2013, four years ago. I'd say probably six. I never know how old I am now. Ru- yeah, <laughs> just ballpark. Eight years, probably, eight, probably roughly. Probably six, years, eight, eight years. Work. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that, traumatic. Yeah, be... so it was it was a pretty rough time. I, at the time, there was kind of a series of aspects of my life which were effectively dying for me at that point in time. Yeah, yeah. So it was um, it was pretty traumatic. Mm. Um, I wrote a big thing about it on Facebook because they told me that if I was to exhibit my work or display it, that that would be willingly acting against the law and I'd be in a lot more trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, well, to kind of make a bit of a statement about the nature and of the relationship between what I felt was morally acceptable and what they felt was legally right um, that I would illegally show my work one last time by following their rules about destroying it by basically building a big wooden pyre displaying yeah. my work on it and then igniting it mm-hmm. um, and yeah <laughs> <laughs> so did you do that? well this was the thing right so I, I think I wrote about it on Facebook yeah. um, and I asked people to come and help you know maybe film each artwork yeah. as it burned yeah. and um, basically try to document and capture as much of everything that was going to happen as it happened and mm-hmm. um, it went a little bit viral, like a bunch of people shared it. I can't remember how many shares or comments were on it, but it was pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Um, a couple of news articles were written about it. Um, mm. I was interviewed on the radio. Um, you were interviewed on Radio, Radio National, National Drive by with, um, Waleed, Waleed Ali. Ali. <laughs> no so, yeah, yeah. for anyone not <laughs> from Australia,
0: Waleed Ali is one of the most well known journalists in the country. Yeah. yeah. So it was pretty big. It was pretty big. It, wasn't, <laughs> you know, it was 15 yeah, yeah. minutes of fame, but it yeah. was, you it was know, f- it was a real 15 yeah, minutes. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. a
1: pretty chaotic 15 minutes. Like, um, I was working with the National Association for Visual Artists. I had uh, the Arts Law Centre of Australia uh, basically putting in work for me as well mm. and try to figure something out. And um, basically, after the radio interview, there was apparently a huge public outcry, and um, apparently the um, relevant department got quite a lot of attention from it and mm. got a large number of phone calls. <laughs> yeah, and um, probably I kind of, didn't like that. I don't, very much. I don't think it went too well. So I, I wound up. It was, it was quite interesting. Um, I got a phone call from one of the guys. And basically Basically said, look, you know, um, we've been getting a lot of phone calls and we're getting a little bit hassled. So we're going to make some kind of compromise. And this is, it's, it's really important that I kind of stress that this is not something that will happen, you know, for other people who are doing yeah. similar things. Um, so I don't want this to be taken as any form yeah. of encouragement. I, this, really, I really yeah. cannot stress enough how important it is for anybody who is interested in doing this kind of work to avoid natives yeah. uh, without looking into the legalities of it all. Um, but basically the, the compromise was kind of made that I would be allowed to keep the work that I'd already made. I was allowed to keep mm-hmm. what I'd already processed and already had in my collection. Um, and I would be given a permit to be allowed to keep it. Okay. Uh, I was absolutely not allowed to sell it. I was yeah. absolutely not allowed to display it, yeah. but photos of it or anything that was not the physical object itself mm-hmm. is completely acceptable. Okay. So yeah. it was a really interesting, um, kind of middle ground because at first I was absolutely jubilant I was like this is fantastic I can keep my work I don't Mm -hmm. have to destroy it but then it kind of dawned on me that it means that I can no longer create work in the same vein it means that Mm -hmm. I can't show anything it means that I can't do anything with it it was kind of like this huge creative block paralysis in a way yeah Yeah. completely (laughs) and
0: then you had this block you had to overcome
1: yeah well what came next um i don't think I actually made art for almost two years after that, to be honest. Wow. Um, it was a really, really long time. Um, I didn't see the point in anything. I mean, I've always been a nihilist, but and I've always <laughs> been a kind of cheerful nihilist. <laughs> <Yeah>. But at <laughs> that point in time, it was just kind of like, well, I don't know what I can do. Yeah. Um, and I think at that point as well, like I had a bit of a different ethical and kind of moral standpoint on it. For me, it was really important to work with native animal bones predominantly at the very least because i'm australian and yeah. i love this country i love the diversity of flora and fauna here and i think there's just so much beauty in that mm. um and that was kind of something that i was wanting to celebrate in more so than the invasive things that destruct and destroy all of the mm, mm. the native animals yeah. and wildlife so it kind of
0: felt it can be hard for people outside the country to understand but there's this really yeah. weird kind of relationship that australia has with its flora and fauna because it's <laughs> unique it's to so, the country so unique and it's had there's like foreign species of plants and animals have had such a negative
1: consequence on the environment yeah it's a very very different thing so Mm. having to make that shift from working with something that that I'm so emotionally connected to Mm. to working with something that i didn't share that same Mm. kind of love and intensity and passion for was a really difficult thing and it's kind of interesting because, like, at the time I was I was really hurt. I really hated it. It was a really difficult kind of thing to come past. But... Mm, well, why can't you use native animals? Okay, so... Because
0: you know, I can... I feel your frustration. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm just
1: thinking... All right, in the 70s um, and leading up to the 70s, you know, Australiana was the big thing internationally. You know, Americans were obsessed with Australiana. Japan was going crazy for Australia. And as a result of that, our native unique flora and fauna was highly valued over there. Yeah. And so there were a lot of taxidermists that were going out there and culling native Australian animals, taking them home, taxiderming them and selling them to... Mm. Um, so it was basically like a black market trade, but it wasn't black market because there were no rules regulating regulated. Okay. Uh, anyway, there were a number of species. Uh, I'm pretty sure that um, the uh, red-tailed black cockatoos were one of them uh, that were actually hunted to near extinction mm. as a result of the booming... Desire for them on the international market, Um, and so to counter this trade, the Wildlife Act was put into place. Um, I. Do think it would be pretty cool if there was some kind of more openness and more accessible way for people who are interested in this to do this kind of work but i also do recognize the potential damage that you know can so, come from so it's the, about
0: feeding into a commercial trade that might yeah. then lead to poaching yeah because obviously road killers road kill and yep. you're not killing anything by yeah, looking yeah. at that but, it, it but how do you feed, monitor it, that you know of course how do you yeah, control yeah. it it's and, it's it, and also it fuels demand and yep. then it increases the Incentive. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So how did you <laughs> how did you find your way into what you do now? Well, what, and what changed? And that's that's the, the thing break. that's
1: so funny, right? I think um, you know, I was always fascinated by the bones and you know seeing everything kind of come together, but I'd never really done naturalistic articulation before. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of my little. I guess my segue back into the creative world, you know, it was like, well, maybe I'll try to refine the technique of actually replicating life, you know, mm. I'll try to deepen my anatomical understandings with everything. So yeah, basically started trying my hand at naturalistic articulation. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> quite
0: a journey you've been on. Um, I'd like to ask you one last question, just thinking about the audience in mind and for those young people that are listening that, have their own creative pursuits that they dream of getting off the ground i'm wondering if you have any thoughts or any advice or any consolation maybe because it's not always so clear uh, <laughs> uh, for them about how they might go about achieving some self-sustainability in yeah. their work
1: for oh, that's a, it's such a tough question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's never easy is the mm. first thing. Um, it's persistence and dedication and just constant trial and error are yeah. really, really, really important things. Mm. Um, and I think one thing that I've kind of recognized is that sometimes it is really important. For example, for me as a creative artist, there are certain things that, you know maybe aren't super inspiring for me to create you know i'd love to spend all my time making big extravagant crazily complex sculptures that are the peak of my creative ideals mm. but sometimes it's really awesome to come back to reality a little bit and just kind of say all right cool you know people are interested in the work that i'm making but yeah. if i'm only making big huge amazing sculptures i'm probably not going to be able to sell as many as i might like yeah. to so kind of making little compromises like you know if you come to any of my shows i'll always have like a couple of big pieces that i'm really really inspired about but I'll always usually try to make a few smaller more simpler pieces mm. that kind of you know carry the same energy and the same story and reflect the same creative processes yeah. but that are that little bit you know maybe more affordable or a little mm. bit less intense or maybe not quite as extravagant as I yeah. might like them, things to be so, middle um, class art yeah. products that, yeah, you yeah. Know, for, the, for the everyday <laughs> consumer the <laughs> mum and dad investor yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um, <laughs>
0: Just get your business wits about you. Figure out what makes money. Yeah.
1: I think the main thing is when it comes to business as an artist is like, that's something that I do not understand. I'm terrible at business. Um, It's been really awesome kind of actually acknowledging that and talking to people who do that professionally, people Mm. who understand this stuff and getting advice from people who understand those kind of things. Um, You know, as much as I can, I recognize, well, that's going to take so much more of my creative and emotional energy than I actually have to give. So Mm. it's, a far better idea for me to pay other people to deal with it. Yeah. So, you know, I outsource as much as I possibly can when yeah. it's things that I can't deal with.
0: Yeah. But that's no that's it's, great. Um yeah, it's hard. That's, yeah, it is but that's pretty sound advice I'd say. Um well Jared Geer, it's been a goddamn pleasure, (laughs) mate. And you know what? We didn't get to talk about it, but you've gone viral before. So it's gone crazy viral, and
1: I find it absolutely hilarious. um, How did it happen? So I shared a photo of uh, five diaphanized fish on my Instagram account. So these
0: are the fish that are...
1: Died. Tra- yeah, the ones that are yeah, rendered yeah. transparent and yeah. and dyed and stained, yeah, yeah. and um, basically that got shared by a really really popular account um, mm. with you know thousands it's of followers on Instagram and- on Instagram, yeah. and so they shared it and we're like, oh, this work by you know articulate imagination is mm-hmm. amazing, mm. um, and eventually some meme lord, some meme, <laughs> some fucking meme lord page and. I love what they did. I fucking love it. Yeah. They basically captioned um, the photo of my diaphanized fish uh, with the headline, Whole Foods are selling dead fish in a bottle for $30. <laughs> and the amount of people that believed it is just astronomical. All these yeah. people are commenting like, going, that's fucked, that's messed up. Yeah, rah, yeah, rah. Yeah. It's gone It's gone ridiculous. Like, um, I've managed to track I think about forty five different versions of that image that have gone round, and there's like over a million likes over Whoa, a, um over Jesus. half a million comments. It's just gone yeah. ridiculous. It'd be amazing if all of them were credited <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but you know there's there's problems that come with you know with 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 that kind of popularity mm-hmm. i I get a lot of you know angry vegans making a lot of assumptions about my work and where it comes from yeah, I, yeah. you know i've got plenty of time to explain it to people who ask questions mm-hmm. but you know when people want to make assumptions and roll with them i don't really have time for it yeah especially um, when you have got a million of them to deal yeah. with <laughs> <laughs> all right man well thank you so much yeah. for coming on the show no, I'm binge pleasure. thinking um
0: <laughs> you know one of these days we'll get you coming back when you're even bigger and better but before i let you go do you just want to tell people listening how they can follow your work? Yeah, Look cool. at your work. Check it out, yeah, by totally. the way. It's fucking insane. Uh, <laughs> like It's one thing to hear about it described. but Yeah, cool.
1: Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you can Google me, uh, Gerard Gear. Um, I say Jared, but it's pronounced Gerard. Yeah, how do you spell that with a... G-E-R-A-R-D. Yeah. Gear, Yeah. Uh, website's currently in progress, but if you want to sneak a peek, it's, I think, pretty much all that's really remaining is my ethos section. I love that the last <laughs> thing that I've done is the most important. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> kind of ironic right um, so that's uh, jared-gear.com mm-hmm. um, and yeah instagram I'm articulated underscore imagination
0: and for the coursework
1: basically you can find links through it through my website um, mm-hmm. but also if you google rest in pieces taxidermy um, yeah they're amazing so yeah. you can find it all through there so
0: there you go yeah. all right well thanks jared <laughs> for coming to binge thinking and thanks pleasure. everybody thanks for, for listening casper oxpress peace out